Welcome into another episode of the Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritschner, Rick Broering with you. Today's February 22nd. We are less than two weeks away from the start of the Big East tournament as we record this right now. It'd be the third game on Wednesday night playing itself out right now. And we have some things to talk about after Xavier lost last night to Villanova. Where we sit right now, Xavier dropped nine spots in the net today from 25 to 34. That was as of Wednesday morning. Uh, They sit 24th on Ken Palm right now. Might jump up a spot as we record this. Virginia just lost to Boston College. They're sitting at 23rd. Xavier's number 16 in Monday's AP poll. And then maybe the most important of these metrics that we track as far as just predicting the bracket. That's what always matters in the end. They are the last four seed on Bracket Matrix in the latest update from late Tuesday. But that was when Xavier lost a shocker last night, 64-63 to to Villanova. Wildcats' first quad one win of the season. Four of Xavier's five Big East losses have come by a combined five points. And three of those losses, without Zach Fremantle, have come by a combined four points. Rick, it really felt like last night you could tell that Xavier was missing Zach Fremantle. I know we talked about it on Monday's Rebound Rundown that for the 29 points Fremantle scored in the first game against Nova, he may have given up close to that many defensively. But in this one, the turnovers cost Xavier more turnovers than made shots in the second half. Didn't have Fremantle, didn't really have the depth. Desmond Claude didn't play as many minutes as we had seen him play before he was out um, with his non-COVID illness. So, Things just did not go right for Xavier last night in the second half, and it turned into another quad three loss. Yeah, and I think the big thing that stood out to me was how much they missed Zach on the offensive end, just in terms of being able to create easy offense. And you saw that with the turnovers, I think, because they started forcing the ball into tighter windows, trying to do a little bit too much. And in the first game, they never really had to do that against Villanova. Everything came pretty easily to them on the offensive end. They scored 88 points in that first game. So one of the things that I thought was interesting about the way Villanova played this game out is they slowed it down a bunch. And they've been doing that all year in terms of their tempo. But the first game was like 73 possessions or something like that for Xavier. This game was 62. So there was a significant difference in how Villanova went about it on their end of the court and trying to take 25 or so seconds off the shot clock as often as possible. And uh, I think that definitely took Xavier out of their rhythm to some extent. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, to to your point, 75 possessions in the first uh, meeting back on January 7th. The final score of that game was 88 to 80. And then yesterday, 64 to 63. That's a crazy difference. Yeah, and I think it's something that you may see other teams try to utilize against Xavier because – The one thing that you've heard coaches talk about, and even after this game, you heard Kyle Neptune talk about the fact that Xavier's really difficult to guard when they're running their offense with pace and the speed of their actions are difficult to guard. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see other teams that Xavier faces down the stretch, whether it be the last few games of the regular season or even in the postseason, if you see opponents, especially ones who are maybe more defensive-minded, they may try to slow it down on, on Xavier. Yeah, no doubt. And and the other thing, too, looking at this game is it's going to count as a quad three loss for Xavier, but with Justin Moore back, with Cam Whitmore, with, with the cast of characters that Villanova has available right now, and Justin Moore lead, led all scorers last night. He had 25. Um, I, I just... It feels like a different Villanova team. This doesn't feel like, obviously, the dominant Villanova team that made a Final Four run last year, but they do have a lot of those pieces still on this team. 
And Rick, even though the metrics won't agree with it, this is still it's a decent Villanova team. I don't know if I'm buying into the to the notion yet that they are this this juggernaut again that you know if you were listening to any of the post game shows last night or anything whether it was no matter what channel it was on I felt like every time I turned around for the two hours after the game last night once I got home and was kind of catching up on the night I felt like the narrative I just kept hearing over and over and over was well you don't want to see this team at the Big East tournament you don't want to see this team at MSG you don't want to see this team here and I, I do agree to a certain extent with that with Justin Moore back they do look entirely different now especially that he's healthy than he did earlier in the year but are you buying all of the hype about this Villanova team that we heard now in the last 24 hours? They're a competitive team again. Earlier in the season, they looked more like a lower-tier Big East team, a team that you expected to win. And that's what kind of sucks about this loss for Xavier. It's a quad three loss, regardless of how Villanova's playing right now or yeah. what Justin Moore means to them. It goes down as a bad loss for Xavier. So that's the hard part about this because – I do think Villanova is much improved. I think last night you caught them on a bad night because Justin Moore played really well. He hasn't been great every game since he's been back, as you would expect. It's been a little hit or miss. But last night was one of those good nights for him. And, and part of that might have been because of Xavier's defense. But, you know, to be quite honest, I know there's a ton of talk about, like, how tired Xavier is and, and how exhausted they look down the stretch. But, like, this was not one of Xavier's worst defensive performances. It was really more about their offensive struggles and the turnovers on the offensive end. I, I thought the effort overall was pretty sustained throughout the game, and I thought the defense wasn't too bad uh, aside from Justin Moore's 25 points. Well, no, and even going back to the Marquette game, that's now two of their last three games where you and I have sat here after the game and said, well, this, this is a pretty good defensive performance, but – you know, the offense in both games, you score 68 against Marquette, and you score 63 against Villanova after a season where you pretty much felt like you got off the bus and put up at least 75 points. Now, all of a sudden, in two of the last three games, you haven't even cleared 70. And actually, if you want to go back far enough, three of the last four, you haven't cleared 70, going back to the Butler game. So wh what do you read into the offense here? Is it mostly Fremantle being out? Is there something else you're seeing? Is it the the opponent going to whatever they've done defensively? I mean, where do you see it, Rick? I think a lot of it has to do with Zach being out because what Xavier was able to do when they were at their best this year on the offensive end was they forced opposing defenses to pick their poison. Do you want to put your best interior defender on Jack Nungy and take the chance that Nungy's going to stretch him out on the perimeter and shoot some threes here and pull him away from the rim? Or do you want to put your best interior defender on Zach Freeman? where, yeah, you're probably going to be able to slow Zach down around the basket a little bit better, but then you've also got, what are you going to do with Jack Nungy, who's the actual center on this team, is almost seven feet tall. So I think the inability to create those mismatches and create those tough decisions for opposing defenses and get all those high-low actions that they've gotten throughout the season and some of the stress that, that those two bigs are able to put on opposing defenses, without that, I think offense has been harder to come by. It's just not as easy anymore. And I think that's been part of it. But I also think there was a reason that you and I were talking about this team winning, you know, 11, 12, 13 games before the season started. And that was because they weren't overly talented and they did have issues last year and the, the year before that. A lot of these same guys came back. They didn't completely overhaul this roster. Sule Boom has been really good. But he was also a mid-major combo guard transferring up to take on 
a, a different role and a lot more responsibilities in the Big East Conference. I think I wouldn't say he's been exposed over the last few weeks, but you've definitely seen some of the reasons that he probably started his career out at a mid-major level as opposed to being a high-major recruit from the jump. So I think those are some of the things that are catching up to them is that they don't have a ton of talent. They're not deep in terms of that talent. And losing a guy like Zach Fremantle is is a lot for them to overcome. They've done a pretty good job of it, but their margin for error all season long was pretty thin. You take Zach Fremantle out of the mix, it's just razor, razor thin at this point. I was going to ask about it later, but since you brought it up, what did you think of the final possession last night for Xavier? I saw a lot of discussion both on the message board and my mentions, people asking why isn't Colby Jones, somebody that we're talking about getting projected in the first round of the NBA, why isn't he getting a, a look there at the end? Xavier doesn't have a timeout. Jack Nunji talked about it after the game that they were looking for some space to clear Sule out for a drive and then potentially kick it back out to Jack if that was an option. Sule takes the ball down the left side of the lane. It goes off the side of the backboard. I couldn't tell if it was deflected or not. Either way, it wasn't close to going in. Um, how did you feel like they handled the end of the game and, and all this discussion? Should Colby have gotten a shot, anything like that? Well, first of all, Colby Jones was two for 10 in the game. He didn't score after the 10-minute mark of the second half. He had turned the ball over a few times within the last few minutes. So, I mean, Colby Jones is a great player. I think he's going to have a great professional career, but I'm not sure that last night is exactly the night to make the argument that you got to force feed Colby in those situations. When at any point during his career have we said about Colby Jones that he's a guy who steps up and closes games for you? Yeah, that's been the question mark surrounding him his whole career. So I'm not really sure where that narrative is coming from a whole lot. I mean, it'd be nice if he was that guy. But to this point, he hasn't been. And maybe there's an argument to be made that you need to develop him in that way. And that should be the strategy. I don't know. I'm not smart enough. I'll leave that to all the coaches on the message board. But I just don't think that's a big talking point coming out of this game based on what we've seen from him his entire career. I'm also a little surprised that people were so shocked by what Xavier tried to do in that situation. Because if you've watched most of the close wins that they've had this year, where they've been able to get something done in those end of game situations, it's mostly been a simple action designed to get Sule boom going downhill and he draws a foul. That's exactly what he tried to do in that game last night. I think the difference is opposing teams know what to expect now. They know that Sule Boom is going to come off a ball screen and be begging for a foul in those end-of-game situations. And Eric Dixon did a really good job of knowing what to expect, taking the switch, shuffling with him, and then avoiding contact and going as straight up as possible to make sure that the refs didn't hit him with that foul call. And, and Sule really wasn't in a position at all to finish around him or over him. He was just begging for a call and then threw that prayer of a, a fling off the side of the backboard. So... Uh, I mean, to me, that's really – it wasn't surprising that that's what they went to, but I do think you're starting to see some teams expect that from Xavier in late-game situations, and they've adjusted to it a little bit. Well, yeah, and even if you go back to the Cincinnati game, it, you look at any of that. If, if Sule doesn't get that foul call at the end of the Cincinnati game, you know who who knows what happens. So, uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I see, I see the end of the game there, and that's the way it plays out. It's just – I think I, it's just – I think I think it's just frustrating for a lot of people to see that and then see the ball go off the side of the backboard and think, wait a second, that was the best look you could have gotten. I also think for like, I don't know, 15 years or so, I've been doing this like 13 years now. So for at least that long, I've heard fans consistently complain about end of game play calls <laughs> and they're all expecting like this 
run the picket fence for Jimmy Chitwood play where you're going to have three or four steps to it. And then you're going to get a wide open jump shot. And if you watch college basketball, occasionally you'll see something great that was drawn up where maybe a coach noticed something the defense was doing and he, he came up with a great counter or something like that. But for the most part, end of game plays are usually a very simple action because teams want to make sure that they either get an, a chance at a shot or they, they go downhill and try to draw a foul. It's not a lot of trickeration and, and schematics going into those end-of-game situations, and yet every fan base for every team across the country has been complaining about the same things for the last 15 years since I've been covering the sport. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to Zach Fremantle here for a second before we move on, and also I saw somebody loaded in. We are taking callers, uh, so we'll be taking callers here for, for, the, for the night, but we're going to – talk here for a, a little longer about some of this stuff with uh last night's game and looking ahead hold, hold on real quick though let's take Doug, let's take yeah, Doug right was, now since he's requested in here. Yeah, yeah go ahead hey guys what's up what's going on Doug? not much um i was gonna call in real quick because i gotta run in a little bit but i wanted to i had a question i was gonna run by you guys well actually two because when rick was talking a moment ago it made me think of something um one like the thing that rick made me think about was in the last, call it six games, I guess since Fremantle went down, if you look at the um, look at the free throw numbers, free throw attempt numbers, not free throw make numbers. I know there will be about five people calling here in a little bit on free throw make numbers, but um, I'm talking free throw attempt numbers. Um, it's weird to look at how much those have dipped a little bit. I know Fremantle does get to the line, but. I think that was like an underrated part of the first, call it 10 games or so of the Big E season that Xavier was just getting there 25 times a game and was essentially you could you could chalk up 20 free points from, from free throws to begin the game. And now it's like six, seven, or eight points um, from that aspect of the game. And there's just a hidden 12 points there that are, that are missing. I think that's a kind of an underrated aspect of part of the offense that's missing. Um, but... One question I was going to ask you guys. Um, so looking ahead at the NCAA tournament, um, what would be the the profile of a team that you think would give Xavier the most trouble? And I guess just looking at bracket matrix right now. So like if you're looking at teams in the, the 12, 11-ish range, so like three different profiles. One would be Wisconsin, slows it down, just walks it up the floor, you're not going to get over 65 possessions in the game. Um, two would be a team like Memphis with a dynamic point guard, bunch of ball screen, and then um, Keontae Kennedy to give everybody some nostalgia. And then uh, the third one would be like Mississippi State with just like a bunch of long athletic guards and um, just kind of like switchable and, and moving all over the court. Out of those three which profile do you think would give Xavier the most trouble? So I think the, the team you probably want to play the least is the team that can really slow it down and defend you. I don't know if Wisconsin specifically is that team this season. But <laughs> that, was, that, was kind of, that was exactly how I was going to say it, Rick. It's like Wisconsin. But like Houston. Houston is the, that yeah. archetype to me of like the team you don't want to play because you know – they will just decide to keep this game at 58 possessions and they're going to take you out of what you want to do. 
I think that would be the hardest for Xavier to overcome if it's a team that can really guard at that level and not let them get on track offensively because I don't think they're great at handling that type of toughness and those other things either. The next most concerning would obviously be the Memphis archetype, the, the team that has the talented, dynamic, ball screen point guard and is going to come downhill at jaw game and really put Sule Boom in a tough position. I think Xavier is best off, believe it or not, guarding a team with size and length and switchable parts that is kind of versatile, but maybe not as dynamic at one or two positions. Yeah, I'd agree with that. That was my reaction too. And one thing on, on Boom, um, it was interesting last night looking at Villanova I, I'm, I'm not the biggest Kyle Neptune fan in the world. I'm not sure that he's, uh, you know, a worthy successor to Jay Wright in all respects, but um, he did do a, a pretty good job of just picking on Boom throughout the game, especially in that second half. They were just picking on whoever Boom ended up on. It was an Armstrong drive. It was a Moore drive. It was whoever it was. And that was, it seems like that's becoming a more effective strategy over the last five games or so for a lot of opponents. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what everyone's gone to. I mean, when I, when I do the the matchups articles the second time around, it's funny because I feel like almost every game I'm watching the same thing. It's like, oh, all everyone's trying to do is pick on Sule Boom. And before when Zach Fremantle was in the lineup, it was pick on Zach Fremantle and Sule Boom when they're on defense. So, um, yeah, I think that, that seems to be the strategy at this point is go right after Sule and, and see how many different ways you can pick on him. But but then if, if you're on the five line too and you're looking down there, what about an Oral Roberts type with Max Asimus? You know, just the one dominant guard. Yeah, I think that's kind of in the same mold as like as Memphis, just like a total totally dominant point guard, which you know Xavier has uh, has had its troubles as Georgetown and DePaul and on and on this year can attest. Yeah, yeah. Going back to your point about the free throws, Doug, I think that's a really really good one, and and that. It's kind of what I'm getting at when I'm talking about the offense just isn't as easy when they were able to create those mismatches and get the defense moving and out of position a little bit more. That's what enables, even though it's not always Zach Fremantle getting to the line every time, them having to help down low on him or help across the blocks and leaving the backside open for a weak side rebound and then they foul or something like that. There were just so many more opportunities around the basket and in the paint for this offense and that's what was creating a lot of those fouls, in my opinion. It was just so much more constant pressure on the paint and on the rim, and they just don't have that right now. Yeah. All right, guys. I got to run, but just want to check in. See you guys. All right. Good Thanks, deal. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Uh, Rick, I, I wanted to ask you one more thing before we get to some more of these phone calls here, and, and you can load them up if anybody has anything to talk about. Um, I, I want to ask you about Zach, because I think a lot of times when we look at guys, and I think we may have talked some about this last week, but – the, the more that this drags on, I think it's important to talk about how how big is it for a guy like Zach where this injury lingers and it lingers and he's already had an injury on this foot and then you try to expect him to come back and be this massive difference maker right away. It's probably unfair to expect him to come back and just all of a sudden get right back into the lineup and be right back where he was two weeks before he was hurt. It's right. going to be, re- yeah, it's going to be really difficult for him. And I don't think that the people inside the Cintas Center right now have those expectations. I, I think they're concerned about what Zach will look like if he's able to come back, if he's actually able to play through this and, and give them minutes, whether it be to wrap up the regular season or in the postseason. I, 
I think that's very much in the air still right now. And I don't think anyone has a great feeling about that either way. I, I think they're hopeful that Zach will be able to come back and give them something, but I wouldn't say there's a ton of optimism about it either. Yeah, if you just look at the way some of these injuries have played out before where things linger, things linger, it just it carries on and on, and then all of a sudden, well, maybe he comes back for five minutes here, ten minutes there. I, I just don't get the sense that this is something that he's going to come back from against you know Butler on uh, senior night next Saturday night, and he's going to play 30 minutes and you know score 25 points. I, that's just it's just unrealistic, and I think most people realize that, but this is just it's a tough injury and it's it's one that lingers and yeah it's real it's really hard to say though too because i mean he was playing through it for a couple games before they decided to shut him down you know and he was playing tons of minutes in those games so it's like who knows after a few weeks rest if maybe he will be able to give them 30 minutes a game for three four five more games down the stretch here who who knows i mean it, it just it's all up in the air right now, and I don't think anybody has a real feel for that, including Zach himself. Yeah. All right. You want to take some calls? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Corey, I'm going to get Corey in here. He's been waiting. Called right at the top. Corey, go ahead. Uh, hey, guys. Can you hear me? Gotcha. Hey, how are you guys doing? Fantastic. How are you? Good. A um, couple quick things. One, uh, more of a question for Jerome Hunter fan club. Um, so maybe he can address this later. Uh, you know, every game day I scroll on Twitter, I see, uh, you know, Jerome post out the uh, the ref prayer. Um, you know, one of the better tweets on game day. But I was just curious, last couple of games, you know, we've had the Butler debacle. Um, and then last night, you know, Kunkel gets called for, a, you know, a travel while simultaneously dribbling. Um, curious on Jerome's behalf, if he was thinking about, you know, maybe needing to change up the, change up the prayer a little bit. I don't know, do something else to, um, see if we can kind of change the luck there. Cause I don't know if, uh, I don't know if the, the refs have been, you know, graced with, uh, the Lord's wisdom the last couple games. Well, why wait? We've got Jerome Hunter fan club on Go the ahead, line. Jerome. Uh, first and foremost, all thanks and praise to our King, our savior, Jerome Hunter. Amen. To, to my friend Corey, you know, it can be trying tie, times when, you know, you believe in God and it doesn't give us the results we want. However, with the beginning of the Lenten season for people that are Catholic, I've taken it upon myself. Not only did I go get ashes because I was like, I need some good mojo to happen for me for once. Throw some ash on my head. Let's see what we can get going. Second, though, and the more important thing. I gave up this Lenten season, Xavier basketball losses. That's what I gave up. So, if if theory does me correct, we shouldn't lose another game because that's what I gave up for Lent. So, we should be good. For like 40 days and 40 nights, Absolutely. Right? I mean, that that gets us far enough, right? Lent, yeah, the uh, Easter Sunday is the Sunday after the national championship. So, by my oh. hat, just hang the banner. You heard it here first. Dude, that's actually... Is that the first time a Catholic school has thought of this strategy? Because I, I feel like someone should have uncovered this before now. That's a good point. Well, Jerome Hunter Fan Club has us covered. I got you guys. Like, who needs Mario Mercurio when you've got Jerome Hunter Fan Club scheduling things out? <laughs> that's a great point. I'm going to tell you what, Jerome Hunter Fan Club. They would go 3-0 and into the Big East tournament. You might be onto something here. Hey, they, hey. <laughs> if they keep the four-seed line, I'll go to Mass every Saturday and Sunday, every time slot they got anything. 
<laughs> I see I see the people freaking out and I say and I say to them, Hold on, let's go to God. Well, that's valiant of you. Thank you. And it's good for the program. It's tough. I forgot some of the steps today. Hmm. Well, it's always time for rebirth to no day better than the present. Uh, I'll, I'll let you guys keep going. Okay. Uh, I was, Oh, Rick, I actually wanted to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought it up, Corey. Um, I had some thoughts on that travel at the end of the game. Did you have any thoughts on that, Rick? I thought it was a travel. I also thought it was a travel. Um, I, I think the frustrating thing is that the nearest official to the ball called the foul and that the trail official called the travel. And then that was what got overruled. I think that was the frustrating part. And I can very much understand the frustration coming from that aspect of it. But after watching it like 40 times in the media room after the game, it was close, but I I do think it was travel. It's just hard for me to get upset about a call that ultimately I think the refs got right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go to Musketeer season. Load up the calls, everybody. If anybody has a call, load them. Load, load them up. up. Load them up. Musketeer season. Go ahead. Yeah. How's it going, fellas? Um, just wanted to get like one thing out there into uh, into Xavier Twitter. I feel like people have been super down on this team. Like, obviously February is February. February's never been good to us. Um. But I feel like people forget that, like, this is Miller's first year. Like, at one point, we were, like, borderline two-seed, three-seed. And, like, I feel like people are, like, freaking out over here. Like, people just got to relax. Like, it's Miller's first year. Like, we'll be fine. Like, yeah, let's be real. The Fremantle injury probably cost us Big East title and who knows what in March. But, like, I feel like Xavier Twitter is kind of freaking out a little bit. Um, I feel like the whole temperature needs to just, like, come down. Love to get your guys' thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think at all that this is some sort of February collapse because I do understand the I understand the sentiment where everybody's coming from. The last few years, February hasn't looked good, but when you lose three games without your second leading scorer and your leading rebounder by a combined four points, that's not a collapse. That's just the fact that you're missing one of the most important pieces of your team. And again, we've talked a lot about the depth. You look at last year, North Carolina almost won a national championship with five guys. Villanova went to the the final four with six guys. The, the rotation and the depth gets tight as you get to the end of the year. But this is not like last year where you're losing to, you know, DePaul and these, these teams down the stretch. I know they lost to Butler. I, I get that. I know they lost to Butler. But if you're comparing this to last year where – or, or the two years ago, whatever it is, where you're losing to, to St. John's, to Seton Hall, it, to DePaul, th- those kinds of games down the stretch. I mean, you're talking about a Villanova team that just got somebody that probably would have been in the National Player of the Year running if he had been fully healthy coming into the season. And then a Marquette team that's going to win the Big East that, frankly, Xavier should have won that game if they could have just gotten a rebound at the very end. So, I, you know, I, I don't think that this is a situation where there is any kind of a, a collapse. It's just you're losing a close game at the very end without one of your top scores and your leading rebounder. I also think that compared to expectations, Xavier has overachieved for most of this year. And over the last few weeks, albeit, again, Zach Freeman being out has a huge, huge role in this. But some of that's caught up to them. Like, 
you know, they, they've played a little bit more to probably what the average was or what the expectation was for them coming into the year. So, I mean, I, I kind of agree with the caller here that it, if you can't enjoy a season like this where your team outperformed expectations all year and you know you're going to be in the tournament and, like, most people were worried about the bubble coming into the year, and I get expectations change, and that's fair and all of that, but I, I do agree with you that I am shocked at how quick people were to turn and be like, woe is us again, and be all upset about this year, it seems. But I, ju- I just think that's the way people watch sports now. I've kind of gotten yeah. over it, just realized, like, that is just how people like enjoying sports now. They love being miserable and yelling about their team online. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good point. Definitely accurate. Um, I just like to remind myself, like, let's be real about it. Well, we lost probably two more scholarship players um, just bringing in a new coach with that being Duan transferring and can't remember the other freshman who's at LSU. He's just buried now. Um, yeah. Tyrell Ward. So, like, like yeah. again, these things, like, if I would have told you this time last year, like, yes, we're for sure in the tournament. We may be a four seed. Like, nobody's going to be bitching about that. Um, I think the future is so bright. So I think Xavier Twitter just needs to relax a little bit. We're going to be just fine. And, and, and even better than that, you're you're a dangerous team heading into yeah. the tournament. Yeah. Like, what if Zach Freeman does come back and he is able to play well and this team gets it going and all of a sudden you're playing against teams who haven't seen Sule Boom yet? and haven't played against this offense yet. And all of a sudden, things are working really well again, and offense is easier to run again. This team could do some damage in the tournament. If you're a Xavier fan right now, what more can you ask for? This is this is what college basketball is all about. I mean, this is what you live for. Isn't yeah. It? yeah. Could, couldn't agree more. Thanks, fellas. Yep. Thanks for the call. Adam, you're here. You uh, how how is the packing and the laundry coming? You texted me. You weren't sure if you're going to make it, but you're here. So how's it all going? Yeah, I'm I'm working on it. You know, I'm uh, I'm deep in my process right now. Okay, all right. What's going on? Uh, What do you have for? Yeah, you know, I just really wanted to say hi. Um, I love it when you guys (laughs) do these spaces. I do want to address something, um, and I'm. I'm guilty of this, you know, like a lot of fans and just people generally watching a game, I can get caught up in the moment too. And, um, and I thought that in the moment that it was an awful travel call on Adam Kunkel. And when you watch the replay, um, he definitely, you know, shuffles his feet. And I I think the, the part of it that was hard for me and for a lot of people was that the, the guy, you know, overruled the, the, and one call was like 40 feet behind the play, you know, um, that, that was the confusing part for me in retrospect, but when you get another look at it, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to argue with the call, but ultimately, well, and Adam, I, I think one thing you have going on there too, is like the people like yourself who are watching it live at the arena, that's what really stands out is you've got one guy underneath the basket who is making a foul call, and then you see this guy flying in from behind, overruling him, and you don't have that great second angle replay right away to see, oh, no, maybe maybe they're right on the call. You're just seeing the dynamics of what happened between the two officials, and it looks really bad on the floor. But when you're seeing it on TV and you immediately see that replay, you're like, oh, okay, you know, like that. maybe it was a good call, maybe it wasn't, but like it was definitely questionable, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I thought like, in the Creighton Marquette game, um, Jeff Anderson essentially squaring up with Greg McDermott was <laughs> uh, that was wild. Such, such a wild move to see from an official. Um, and actually, I was up at Xavier today, 
and they didn't do a lot, but but I watched practice, and uh, and I was kind of sitting out in the courtside club after practice doing a few things, and Sean walked by, and I was like, Sean, um, you know, if, if Jeffrey Anderson squares up to you, what? How are you handling that situation? And uh, I, I won't, I, I can't, I can't betray his trust by, by saying exactly what he said, but it was it was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine, first of all. But that's the thing with Jeffrey Anderson, who's the high knees ref, if you've seen him on Twitter before. Any guy who is going to do the high knees trot and run like that is clearly way too into himself. Way too into himself. He clearly thinks he's the show, and that's the whole problem with Jeffrey Anderson. He always wants to be involved in the action way too much as a ref. Yeah. No, and the, and the other thing that I wanted to, to say – you know, kind of piggybacking on what the last caller brought up, Musketeer season is, you know, I I fully understand as well as anyone. A lot of the Xavier fans have some shrapnel and uh, and some PTSD from from what's happened recently in this month. Um, so today I was just curious, and I tweeted this out. Um, you may have seen it, but I was like, how have how have they done through twenty eight games um, since they've been in the Big East and. I don't know what I was expecting to find, but like the fact that this is essentially this season is the third best season that Xavier's had from a record standpoint since joining the Big East. Only two other teams, I believe it was 16 and 18. Yep, 16 and 18. Had better records than this team does currently through 28 games, which I was kind of, I don't know what I was expecting, but I found that interesting. Well, yeah, thinking back through the through the deck and think about the team that made the Elite Eight. That team was an 11 seed in the tournament because they had all those injuries through the second half of the season. And guess what? They came back. They were an 11 seed because of the losses they'd accumulated, but they sure weren't an 11 seed with the talent on the court, and then they end up making a run in the tournament. Yeah, if anything, Xavier's history and their success after overcoming adversity and, and playing from a lower seed than you would typically expect to make a run in the tournament that should give fans an understanding of how much fun this time of year is and what a special season this actually has been in a lot of ways. And st- like, it's so weird how so many fans seem to expect the season to be perfect every yeah. year. It's like, well, we should dominate. We should win the big East, be undefeated and go to the national championship every year. And it's like, I, I don't know when at any point in history that became something you felt you deserved, but it's never happened before. So, um, enjoy years like this but whatever i mean or don't hate it i don't care like you know do do what you want as a fan it is just weird to kind of hear those reactions sometimes it is it is and ultimately it's a question of you know do do you believe in sean miller because if you do and i understand that like you're not going to bat a thousand in terms of who you bring in and how you develop them they're not all going to work out but like sean miller has brought in one player to Xavier since he returned, Sule Boom. And I just think, like, at some point, you know, the roster is going to turn over. He's going to go out and get some transfers. He's going to bring in a new recruiting class. And you're going to get to see him develop those guys from from day one, from their freshman year starting out. And uh, and you've seen what he's done with with this roster, which which really wasn't his. So – I think that there's a lot to be excited about from a Xavier perspective going forward. Um, and who knows how the rest of this year is going to go. You know, this is such a different, different team from last year in that, and Paul mentioned this, 
Last year in February, you lost at home to St. John's by 13. You lost at home to Seton Hall by 16. You lost at St. John's by 15. You lost at UConn by 11. Like, just double-digit poundings that that were never really close at, at any point in the second half. Like, it, the, the big difference this year for me is that these are games that Xavier – that you're upset about because you're you feel like you're giving them away and you have you have shots to win at the end you have mistakes that are creeping in that are ultimately costing you these close games and uh it's just to me it's such a different vibe from from a year ago when it was like you were getting blown out by teams like th- this is not that in my opinion no, I, I I fully agree with you on that, Adam. I, I'm I'm very much on that train. I just I, I look at the way that this season's going to play out from this point on, now into the Big East tournament, and you have to hope, right, that the the seating works out, and you, you have a chance to control what happens here now if you go two and one or three and zero oh down the stretch. And I mean, I'd be curious on your guys' thoughts, but I don't think I don't think Seton Hall and Providence, granted Providence, it's on the road at. Well, it was the dunk. Now it's the M. I don't think those are terrible matchups for Xavier, even with Zach Fremantle out. I would agree. No, I would agree. Yeah, yeah I think I think all of those games are winnable. At the same time, we've seen with the Xavier team, it, like there's little margin for error. So you could lose all three if you don't play really well. Yeah, and that's that's the problem that they're in right now. Like they they can't have any slip ups, any letdown at all. They, they have to play really well to win against pretty much every team in the conference because they do have some some deficiencies. And especially with Zach Fremantle out, those have been amplified. Yeah, and that to me it's important because, you know, what has been the prevailing feeling at the end, at the, the regular season finale the last three years? It's been, oh, my God, we've got to go to Madison Square Garden and we have work to do to make the NCAA tournament. Like, you just you just don't want to be anywhere near that situation again this year. And the, the situation is different. I think you could make an argument that, that Xavier might be um, really good already, the, no matter what happens over these last three, as long as you don't lose to, to Butler probably. But um, you don't want to go back to MSG with, like, this lingering feeling of man, do we have work to do? Because like, it's it hasn't worked I mean, out. You definitely don't want to lose out. You don't want to lose out. Obviously, everyone's going to feel terrible if that's the way this season ends again. But I also am in the camp that I actually think they would probably still get in the tournament, even if they lost yeah. out. Like I think they're already to the point of there's no more work to do. You're in a you're a top sixteen seed as of this past weekend. I think you're in the tournament now. You could drop a lot here if you lose out the rest of the way, but I, I think you're going to be in the tournament, especially when you start looking at some of those other teams on the bubble. Yeah. Xavier's going to be fine. Um, and, and, while, and by the way, while Xavier's net was tumbling over the last few days, West Virginia's shot up, and they are now a quad one win again. So Xavier has five quad one wins once again. Yeah. And, so and they the, got that going for them. The other thing, too, is that Xavier has clinched playing on Thursday. They can't play on Wednesday, which means – you know, assuming there's not some crazy upset on Wednesday night, even if you lost out theoretically and then lost in the first round of the Big East tournament, you're not catching that horrific loss. That's right? true. You, you, you know, you're, that loss might be to a Villanova team that could go on and win the Big East tournament, or it could be to a Seton Hall team that's fought pretty hard here and would have beaten you twice in four games. I mean, it's not 
it's not the Wednesday at 3.30 against St. John's in front of 4,000 people. So, Paul, what you're really telling me is that you and me get two party nights in New York before Thursday. That's what you're telling me? <laughs> I hope there's more than that. All right. But at least two. I'm, I'm involved. <laughs> at least two. Absolutely. I hope I hope that we uh I hope that we have some people on this call that are gonna be in New York too. Oh, I think we make, make a prediction, both of you. What what do you think this team does to finish off the regular season in these final three games? I say two and one. I also I say they split split the road and then beat Butler. That's that's where I'm at too. Two and one. So I think a lot of people would probably agree with that. And the one thing that I do think stood out about the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee's reveal show where they showed the top 16 seeds on Saturday, they clearly valued big road wins yeah. over everything else. So if you pick up another quad one road win here, I think that undoes a lot of the damage of that quad three home loss to Villanova. Yeah. And, it, you know, if, that's a, if Villanova, yeah. I think Paul tweeted this, if Villanova can find a way to, to really get going here, like they're probably gonna. What do they? They need to get top seventy-five for that to not be a quad three, right? Yeah, that's not out of the question either. So that they could play their way. No, they're they're eighty-third. Yeah. I mean, they're right there. Yeah, and the, on all three games they have left are quad one games. Yeah, that's not bad. So yeah, they go. I mean, they play Creighton at home they, in Philadelphia. That's at Wells Fargo. Then they go to Seton Hall. That's winnable. Then they're back home at Wells Fargo against UConn next Saturday. I mean, there there's a world where where Villanova becomes a quad two loss, and you still just have the one quad three game at DePaul lingering on there. So, yeah, uh, it, yeah. If that plays out and you split you split the road games here, all of a sudden that resume you you feel fine about the way things played out here. Yeah, right? for sure. The one the one last thing, just since we're talking about the Big East tournament, I'll, I'll bring it up now with the way that Xavier's schedule plays out and, and the rest of the games uh, with everything. I know, you know people will tweet and ask, well, what do we want to happen? Who should win this? Who should win that? As far as I can figure, and I, I spend an ungodly amount of time on this simulator running the, uh, running the machine here, I, as far as I can figure, Xavier fans should be rooting pretty hard for Villanova to beat Creighton on, uh, on Saturday afternoon. Because that may, that would basically mean that if Xavier goes two and one the rest of the way, Marquette, UConn, and Creighton would all be on the opposite side of the bracket for Z- from Xavier, and only potentially having to face one of those teams, which would even be in the title game. I mean, you, the last thing I would want to do right now, if I was Xavier, and I know you could disagree with this easily because you could say they're two and zero against them this year. But UConn has been playing extremely well, and that's a pseudo home game at MSG. You'd have 20,000 UConn fans there. I I just don't want to play UConn at 2.30 on Thursday afternoon. That seems like a death trap. Marquette's playing really well. I mean, and then, of course, Creighton, which is probably the worst matchup in the Big East for Xavier. So if you're looking at it, 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 if if Villanova was to beat Creighton on Saturday afternoon, that gives Xavier a pretty good chance of – avoiding um, that half of the bracket if Xavier can go two and one, which I think. And then you're basically worried about problems. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, you got to pick your poison somewhere. Yeah. But, right. Sure. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I agree with you. I think, I think you're dead on. Like, I think but, I would take that chance. If I'm a Xavier fan. Yeah. So, so, I mean, look, it's, it's fun to do this 
and I that's why I take the thirty seconds and explain it out. But if if Xavier was to go two and one and Villanova beats Creighton, that would put Xavier in the nine thirty game on Thursday night against the winner of Seton Hall and Georgetown to then play the winner of probably Providence and Villanova with UConn, Marquette, and Creighton all fighting it out on the top half of the bracket. I would take that 12 days out of 10. And what time would that be on Friday, Paul? Would we have enough time to party until the sun comes up, or how would that work? Well, they just wouldn't shut the bars <laughs> down. We'd wear the same thing and then just go right back to MSU all the right. next day. That'd be at night. 9.30 tip on – or a 9 o'clock tip on Friday night, 9.30 on Thursday. Oh, baby. I, I love Broadway, man. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> All right. Well, that's all I got. I'll let some other callers get in here. It was nice talking to you guys. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. See you, man. All right. I'm going to go to Tom. Tom's been in here for a while. Got some more people loaded up here. I see Doc Rock. Saw Doc Rock at the game last night. Sorry to hear that. Oh, we love Doc Rock. Oh, we love Doc Rock. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Tom? So, Paul, how you doing? Rick, good to see you. Fantastic, Tom. How are you? Uh, hey, Tom. All right. I'm in the. I'm actually in the health and safety protocols right now, so I've been killing time while listening to this great program. So, uh, you know, nothing a little uh, rest and Paxlovid can't fix. <laughs> you feeling all right? Yeah, just get well soon. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, it is what it is. Rona's still out there, people. Yep. Uh, but anyway, uh, right, what do you got for us? Well, first of all, you know, I'll be there at MSG, but I, you know, I don't show up till the semifinals. So, you know, Xavier's clearly going to get there. And uh, as you know, Paul, yeah. I, I reside in the great state of Connecticut, which I'm not sure if you are aware Xavier owns this year. So we're, we're repping the hard year, all 10 alumni here. In the state <laughs> Absolutely. Of yeah. Um, you know, first I got, I have an observation and then I have a question for you guys just to try to pick your brain. My observation is, you know, I mean, I'm an old guy, so I've seen Xavier through every iteration, came into Xavier through Skip Prosser, you know, through every era since then. And the, the biggest difference to me this year is you can really tell the difference between a collection of talent and a program. And that's what I think Sean brings to the table. Um, you look at all the different players this year that have accepted their roles. That was something that we didn't necessarily have the last couple of years. And to me, that's just the thing that's most evident um, with the change from this year to last. And I, I would really encourage Xavier fans that are panicking about the current state of losing some of these games. You know, I watched most of the Cincinnati Temple game tonight. And would you rather be us? Or would you rather be what Cincinnati's dealing with right now? Is that they're in a they're in a place with a coach where I'm not really sure what they're going to be in one or two years. And I think as a Xavier fan, I really know where this team is going to be in two or three years, and that's going to be building toward a team that can contend in the Big East on a year in and year out basis. So with that in mind, my question for you guys is. Um, what do you you know it's it's I know we're we're all in the moment here for this year, but what do you see next year with some of the pieces that are on the roster now and that are coming in? What do you think that rotation looks like next year or or guys that might be stepping up into new roles next year? Rick, I have some thoughts on this, but go ahead. Uh, well, you go ahead because I, I mean, how do you even start without knowing what's going to happen in the transfer portal? Yeah, I mean, it's just I, impossible I, to really predict at this point. Yeah, I, I just I look at it and and I had the, the way I was going to answer this is I 
I had somebody ask me the other day about eligibility and by my math looking at this, I mean, everybody assumes Colby's going to be gone because he's been projected high. But as far as I can tell, Adam and Sule are the only two that have to leave. Correct. They're the only two that have completely aged out. So you look at Zach, he could be back. Colby could be back. Jack Nunji could be back. Jerome could be back. Des Claude, Kiki, those guys, obviously Des, those guys down toward the end, they could all be back. So then the question becomes, what is who leaves? And then what, what happens in the transfer portal? Because it's just such a different environment now, Tom, as you know, than it was three or four years ago where it took a whole, a whole process to rebuild a program. If a bunch of guys left, now you can go out there and basically have a new team that's competing for the second weekend of the NCAA tournament and, and one off season. So um, I guess for me, like Rick said, it, it's just hard without knowing a guy like Colby, one of the best players on your team. Is he back or is he going to the draft? How, how does his last three weeks of the season finish up? Those are the kinds of things you're looking at. But kind of hard from this perspective now before the before we know any of those to, to look at next year, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's cool. not really a, appropriate to be, you know, talking about guys should be moving on before their season's over, I, I think, personally. I mean, that's something we'll definitely talk about once the season ends. But right now, I don't think that's really appropriate. And, and the other thing I would point out is Adam – Baum was just talking about how Sean only brought in one guy so far. That was Sule Boom in the offseason. I do think that was somewhat intentional. They knew they didn't have a lot of talent. They knew depth was going to be an issue this year. They liked the character of the guys that they had in place. They liked that this meant something to the guys that had stuck around. And they wanted to, as you pointed out, build a program and get the program going in the right direction for the talent that they're about to bring in next year and going forward. So I do think, you know, as we look at why didn't they go out and try to get a few more mercenaries maybe for this year to, to load up on some talent because there were obviously some deficiencies. I think to some extent that was a conscious decision. I personally love the idea that they brought back, you know, the core of the team that won the NIT. Um, I think that was a really smart move by Sean to, you know, let those, let those guys try to finish or continue what they started in that in that run. I thought that really set a good tone, you know, moving into this season and probably is a big reason why they are having success this year. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I really appreciate the time. and Good to talk to you and talk to you soon, Paul. Tom, I'll see you in New York. Oh, you bet. Oh, looking forward to it. Love it. All right. Let's go to uh, Xavier Professor who's been hanging in here for a little while. If we can get him in. Hey, can you hear me? Go ahead. Gotcha. Perfect. All right. So are you guys ready for me to confirm I'm the dumbest listener of this show? Uh-oh. You all are cowards. Sure. Uh, give me UConn and then Marquette. <laughs> we swept We swept. Oh, UConn. wow. Why do you say we that? We lost by, what, was it one or two at Marquette down Zach? Nah. Give me that path. I love it. I I do agree that I would not be petrified of Marquette, but if you can avoid that and get Seton Hall in Providence, I I would take that. That is probably the smarter path, but is it the more glorious one? I don't think so. Well, now that's a that's true. <laughs> that's a different that's question. True. That's a different question. No, uh, the one question I did have for you guys tonight was uh, which Big East coach is most likely to join his team on defense or at the very least unable to stay in his coach's box. Mm. Well, Kyle Neptune has to be number one, right? 
And uh, I'm trying to think. Who else? Well, Big East, can we go outside the Big East? Who was the guy back at the beginning of the year that was legit a sixth defender? Yeah, that guy. Was that Sean Woods? I think it was. From Southern? Southern, is that who's? Yeah, the, Sean Woods. Is that their coach? Yep, Sean Woods. He was the sixth defender. So that's going outside the Big East. But if we go outside the coaches, uh, I'll go outside t- the Big East. Tony Stubblefield is active. Oh, yeah, yeah. He Tony stays active over there on the sideline. That's true. He can get inside the arc at some, time, at some points in the game. Yeah, Stubbs will get after it on defense. He's not afraid to go out there and slop the floor. All right, well, that's all I got for you guys. Thanks. All Appreciate right. it. That's all we need. All right. Andy? Go to Andy. Hey, hey. Going I on. just got on. So, uh, <clears throat> hopefully I'm not bringing up something somebody else has brought up. But I was watching – just in watching college basketball, man, it seems – Agreed. So have I. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> the uh, – people are getting hit in the face a lot more. You think that's just because the game is faster? <laughs> <laughs> I agree on that too, Andy. <laughs> Hold on. What, what was the reasoning for it? Why? Why? Why do you think it might I, be? You think it's just because like they're the guys are are just going faster, or like I just have noticed. I mean, obviously, just having Colby, you notice people getting hit in the face because he constantly gets hit face, hit in the face. But I mean, I was watching a Kentucky game, saw a Florida guy hit a Kentucky guy in the face. It just, it just seems like it's happening more. I don't know. I, I tell you what, Colby's. His face gets hit an absurd amount. You are correct about that. As far as the rest of the college basketball world, I cannot speak to whether or not it's happening more often than it used to or why that may be, uh, but it is a fascinating observation, Andy. I guess just because like you see Colby and then you see another guy get hit, you're like, that. oh, that guy got hit in the face too. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why, but I, I, for something with Colby, my man gets hit at least once a game. I think one thing is clear: neither of us were equipped to answer that question. Albeit, it's a great one. Awesome. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't really have an answer, but I know that it's a thing. No, that's legit. Hey, Paul, thanks for throwing up the uh, ball to two hundred three. I appreciate it. I try. I try. He is a cannon. Was I, was I close to you? Uh, the first time you tried, some like weirdo high school kid was right there, right when I was about to go grab it, and he, it just went wow. right to him. And then the past couple times been to two hundred five. But um, when my son was there this past Saturday, there was some cheerleaders down in the concourse, and they gave him a ball. So that that was pretty cool. Okay, good, good. We got everybody taken yeah, care of. So, so uh, I, right. I, I do appreciate it though. Absolutely. Thanks, right, Andy. Thanks, guys. Johnny, go ahead. Uh, hey, guys. Thanks for doing this. Um, so I guess my question would be, it, um, I know you guys kind of touched on it a little bit just kind of throughout the podcast so far. Um, seemed like kind of at the beginning of the year, you know, expectations were that uh, Xavier was going to be a bubble team. The reason I'm asking this is because there have been a lot of expectations talk on the boards recently. So seems like uh, beginning of the season expectations are you know going to be fighting for a bubble team probably I think I think people were maybe thinking they'd make the tournament but hard to know if that's just because you're a fan and won it so you think it 
then I feel like we get, uh, you know, halfway through the season, they get that UConn win, that Marquette win. People are, it seems like that was probably the height of the hype, probably, of the season, I'd have to think, because that DePaul loss was right after that. Uh, then we're where we are now, where maybe people are kind of back to not, I mean, not going to miss the tournament or anything like that, but people are feeling a little lower, maybe. So I'm just kind of curious where you guys think this season realistically would end. Um, you know, I mean, like I said, there seems like they're pretty much a lock to make the tournament. Um, second weekend, yeah, probably wouldn't guess any much further than that, probably, but just curious on your I, thoughts. I, I thought, yeah, I talked about this on one of the shows at Chatterbox uh, earlier today. We were talking about expectations for Xavier, um, uh, me and, and Trace Fowler and Reed Mouse, if any of you were listening to that, um, we, uh, we were talking about the expectations, and I said, I think with Fremantle, the expectations are again back to I, – I think with a healthy Fremantle, this team should expect to be in the second weekend. I know you could sh- it could shake out with a bad matchup or whatever, but I, I, I firmly believe that this Xavier team is a second weekend team with a healthy Zach Fremantle. But that is a massive question mark at this point now, and – if he doesn't come back at all, or if he is, uh, if he comes back, but he's only getting a few minutes here, a few minutes there, and he's not at a hundred percent, I maybe maybe you just have to hope for a, a good break in the bracket. I, I I my expectations are not as high as they would be if this team was fully healthy and playing to their to that kind of a potential. Yeah, and I don't think my expectations at their peak this season have changed at all to now. To me, this is like at their peak, I thought this is a team that has a chance to make a second weekend run. And that's still how I feel. I, I would not quite be as strong as Paul about it in that that they're clearly a second weekend team with Zach Fremantle. I think they need a lot of things to break right for that to happen. But I do think they're capable of making to the Sweet 16, potentially even Elite Eight if it lines up properly. Um, but to me, that's that was their upside even at their peak this year. And that's where it still is. All right. Th- yeah. Thanks for answering. That's really my only question. There's just people are just kind of all over the place at the moment. So just curious what you guys had to say. So thank you. Yeah. What's really fascinating is Paul pointed this out to me the other night. If you go back and listen to our season preview podcast that we did, you get to like, uh, what is it, like an hour in, 55 it, minutes it, in, it, something like 55 that? 55 minutes in, yeah. And you could just cut that and drop it in here right now, this second of this podcast. And you wouldn't even know that we recorded it back then. It's like, I mean, we were, I was a little bit lower on what their overall record would be. We get into that a little bit later, but like the immediate points that we're making at that moment is when we're going through the schedule and we're talking about these final three games and we're like, you know, those are going to be three tough games. And obviously people could be anxious if you're going into that on a, a losing streak, potentially with, Villanova beforehand, and this was before before we knew that Villanova was going to struggle as much as they did this year, of course. So um, it was it was kind of interesting listening to it back and being like, "Wow, that is it played out kind of similarly to how we thought it would." And and these three games are just as meaningful as we expected. Yeah. Thanks, Johnny. Uh, all right, Rick. Do we? Uh, what do we want to do here? Let's take Yuli. All right, Yuli. Now again. We need a Xavier fan to end the call, but Yuli, you're up. So I'm, I was wondering, I'm looking at the Big East tournament, and 
what, what would your ideal path be? I know you touched upon it earlier, but do you want to play for a two or three seed and probably play Creighton after playing a seed in Hall or Villanova that's already going to have a game in them? Or do you want to play UConn, a team that you have owned this season, swept, and go for the, the three-peat on them? To me, UConn and it would go to me, Creighton, and then UConn in the teams I would not want to play. And then from there, I would probably just put a toss up. You, you, you got to play one of one of the one of the big teams, obviously, Providence, Marquette, one of them. Like, you can't you can't avoid them all. So at, at some point, you're going to have to face somebody in, on on Thursday or Friday night. And uh, I would say of those teams, you'd rather play Providence and then you'd probably rather play Marquette. And then there's a pretty big gap to uh to UConn and and to um uh who am I forget oh Creighton I I don't know maybe I'm Rick maybe you'll disagree with this maybe I'm severely overvaluing uh UConn at MSG but just being there last year and in that environment it's just unbelievable what they bring to the table at MSG is that your whole concern is just that you feel like it's basically home court advantage for them it's a it's home court advantage in the Big East tournament and also watching their last three games, they just they look they look good. They look real good. Now, now then again, they were also fantastic when Xavier beat them the first time. So maybe that's maybe I am just severely overvaluing the the Big East tournament. The the one thing is is it's probably the team that Xavier's proven to match up the best with. Yeah, in conference play so far. So I think. The one thing about playing UConn is you know you have a chance to beat them because you match up with them pretty well. I figured you were going to lean into the whole hard-to-beat-a-good-team-three-times narrative, and obviously the the fan support there at MSG is going to be significant, but I don't know. I wouldn't be terrified of having to play UConn in the tournament if I was Xavier. If, if there's any – I'd have to go back and find it. I used to have a chart of the hard-to-beat-a-team-three-times, a and it actually wasn't that hard. Um, but I'd have to go back and find it because I don't want to quote it, obviously, if I don't know it for sure. Um, but, yeah, I, I just – if you can get – oh, here it is. Uh, the the third time around, from 2010 to 2020, the third time around, the team that had won the first two games won the third game 71% of the time. Is so, this in Division One college basketball? Uh, is that what we're talking about? College basketball, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I'm assuming it's D1 because it's coming from somebody that covers D1 basketball. But okay, um, yeah. So the the team that that won the first two games between 2010 and 2020. So that's a little over 1,200 games of a sample size. So a pretty big sample size. Won that third game 71 percent of the time. So when you hear the narrative, so and so can't beat so and so because it's hard to beat a team three times. Well, it happens over seven out of ten times. So, and that's that's a pretty big sample size. So you're not going to change your opinion on UConn then, after I, reading I, off that stat. I well, I would still rather not play them at two thirty on Thursday if you can play Seton Hall at nine o'clock on Thursday. I agree, I agree with that. I agree with that. That's that's the frame of reference I'm coming from. Does that answer your question, Yuli? Yeah, I, I would avoid Creighton at all costs. I. That's a team in the tournament that I don't want to face. I think that they have a legit shot. I'm happy that we're on the 8-9 line, and we'll probably, if we beat St. John's, play Marquette, because that's a team that's beatable. 
Yuli, I don't mean to, to derail this space here much, but very quickly, I just have to ask you. Uh, there's three minutes and 43 seconds left in this Butler game, and, the, and Butler's up one right now. I have it on the TV. Are, are you oh, watching this? Of course this? I'm watching. Okay, all right. It, it, just making sure. It's the most bipolar game. It, DePaul could have pulled away. Butler could have pulled away. It's like they want to play a one-point game. <laughs> well, yeah. All right. Thanks, Julie. Thank I appreciate you. it. All right. All right. Subscribe all right. to uh, Rebound Rundown Podcast. Subscribe to musketeerreport.com. And uh, we will talk to all of you on Monday. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because the Providence game is Wednesday. So let's just do Monday again. All right. There you all go. Right. Sounds good. See you, everybody.